Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. How much in terms of dollar terms are we looking at right here? Oh, I'm talking about love. You're talking about dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Alexandre Petrosian, the scion of a century-old caviar trading family. This family that helped make sturgeon eggs into an international luxury good, the way we think about luxury goods today, a global signifier of status. Yeah, we are talking luxury goods today. Transformation from fish eggs into caviar, food into luxury, and sustainable ways of doing that, including for fur later on in the podcast. Because it is kind of funny that fish eggs are considered a luxury. I mean, why not bird eyeballs? But this guy's grandfather is one of the people that made this happen. When the Petrosian family got started trading caviar, it was Alexander's grandfather coming from Russia to Paris, bringing caviar after the Bolsheviks toppled the Tsar. And with a partnership with Caesar Ritz of the hotel, they sold it with champagne and made it into a luxury good. It was wildly popular to the point where the sturgeon fish that produces it in the Caspian Sea is on the brink of extinction. But what's different perhaps now than in the old days, it seems like people care more about the ethics of their luxury. And uh, Tim here pulled some strings, called in some favors, broke some kneecaps, and uh, got us into the Petrosian caviar vault. Um, And by pulled some strings, I mean they just asked if we wanted to come. And, you know, we're not going to turn that down. (laughs) (laughs) So we wound up on this almost abandoned-looking street with nondescript buildings in Queens. I am Alexander Petrosian, and my title is uh, Managing Director, uh, and we are in Long Island City. This is the last place I would expect to find stockpiles of really expensive caviar. This is like an industrial area where, with no marked signs. <laughs> That's exactly why we're here. Exactly why we're here. We don't want anything. We don't want to tempt anybody. You know, it's... He took us downstairs to what was sort of like a laboratory-style clean room with everyone in white gowns. So we have to uh, suit up, shoe cover, hairnet, blouse, what else? These are like, these are like hospital gowns or like biohazard suits. That yeah. there's no hazard. Just want to make sure we don't bring anything from the street to the room, so no hair. And caviar is very, very fragile, so obviously you don't want to pack it with any bacteria you may have on yourself. Okay, so as you see, uh, we uh, opened a little caviar. Describe what we're looking at here. We're looking at this row of gold and blue tins, about six inches, eight inches in uh, diameter, and they're chock full of these glistening black caviar. You have about uh, 20 kilo. 20 kilos, that's like 44 pounds. How much in terms of dollar terms are we looking at right here? Oh, I'm talking about love, you're talking about dollar. <laughs> <laughs> So this one is, of course, farm-raised. It's uh, farm-raised in the United States. It's called a transmartness. Open the tin, take a nice spoon, and share it. That's really good. That is good. It's I've very red. I've had caviar before, and it's, yeah, it's way better than I expected. It's sort of like umi. It's that same kind of briny, umami. Yeah, and it's very rich. It's very, like, fatty almost, like... Each, uh, each tin is one fish. So it varies in flavor by from fish to fish? A lot. Here, try it. From texture to flavor to uh, the mouthfeel, everything will change. It does taste completely different. I guess like every child is different. And this is sort of like a group of 
fish children. So we ended up tasting a lot of caviar, more caviar than I've actually had in my life. And after we finished sampling, we went upstairs to Alexander's office to ask a few more questions. He made the case for why this stuff is so expensive. After all, it's just fish eggs. So why is it a luxury good? Caviar, let's face it, it's not cheap. There's not, you know, it's rare. And everything that's rare, it's not cheap. It's not because we decided one day, oh, yeah, let, let's put this price on it. No, it's very rare. It, it takes a lot of work to, to process this caviar. It takes a lot of knowledge to actually transport this caviar. And believe it or not, the, 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 the transportation of caviar is very expensive because it needs to be refrigerated at a very constant temperature. Uh, so you really have to control every part of it. So that's why caviar has this price. Just, you know. Is it only sturgeon or can any fish have a caviar? No, only sturgeon roe can be called caviar. Any other roe are not caviar. Um, you hear often the red caviar, the, uh, and it, it's just not true. The, 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 the real caviar is from sturgeon. Have there been sort of legal fights to sort of preserve the right to call it caviar and keep other people from calling it caviar? A lot, actually. We fight every year for it. Um, in the United States, it's not really done yet. Everywhere in Europe, it's done. Uh, but in the United States, you can still call caviar pretty much anything you want. One day, everyone else will have to call it trout eggs, like they should be forced to. Well, they should. You know, salmon roe should be called salmon roe. Trout roe should be called trout roe. And, you know, it's all right. It's delicious, but it's not caviar. Since uh, you guys have came here, how has the market for caviar changed? Is the person who was buying it in the 80s the same as the person who's buying it today? I think I think it is. Uh, the, the, the actual caviar changed a lot since uh, since the, the, the 80s. Around 2000, uh, the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife stopped the import of beluga, then they stopped the import of sevruga, and then they stopped any import of any wild caviar. Worried about like the fish going extinct correct. or being endangered. Correct, correct, correct. Uh, and now we we are left with the farm caviar, which actually is not that bad. People always think, oh, farm product. No. Uh, actually, farm caviar can be as good as wild caviar was, and sometimes even better. Uh, because you know, we're able to control a lot more of the environment. It's, it's a lot safer for, for, for our customers, for us, and for everybody. You know, we know what type of water they grow in, they, they, we know the quality of the water, and it's sustainable. So it's, it plays a big part in, in, in our uh, new development, for sure. All right, thank you so much. This was so fun. Yeah, of course, of course. All right, caviar is a luxury good that once contributed to the near extinction of sturgeon. Uh, farming relieved some of that pressure. Alexander says you can now find sturgeon farms from Bulgaria to China. And caviar is, is really just one example of a luxury good that has put animal species at risk. Tim, now that we are not in the caviar factory, what did you actually think about the taste? Oh, I really liked it. It was tasty. It was yeah. like it was like the most extreme form of lox. Mm. And I also wish that we had had some champagne or vodka to have with it. That's what I was thinking. Sure. I wanted, yeah, vodka to go with it. But that. I could taste the luxury. It was rich mm-hmm. in every sense of the word. I immediately felt uh, superior to <laughs> 99% of everyone else. Anyway, like we were saying, farming of fish helped relieve some of the pressure on sturgeon. But Interestingly, some people are making the argument that the opposite course of action might make fur more sustainable. So we have Jenny Avens back here again. Great friend of the podcast, Jenny Avens, a lifestyle reporter at Quartz. Hello, Jenny. Hello, Tim. 
you uh you love fur which is a problem obviously for some people and it's a hard conversation to have yeah it's a problem for me it's a it's a conflicted love my love of fur i love to wear it i also sort of love to think about it i love it as a conversation but it's a hard one to have with a lot of people yeah i mean three words fur is murder do you want to make the case for a a nuanced or ethical way to talk about fur? Yeah, I think a lot of people would say similarly that meat is murder and that we've gotten to a place with meat where we can have a sort of more nuanced conversation about it, where some people might say they won't eat meat that was raised in a factory farm or that they eat grass-fed beef or free-range chicken. I think there is room for a conversation like that about fur. But I think it's it's hard because it's heated and emotional and it often poses really adorable, defenseless animals against vain, rich, luxury <laughs> consumers. Can you give us a snapshot of fur in the fashion world right now? Like how much is it being used uh, by designers? How much is being bought or sold? Yeah, it's being used a lot. We've seen it sort of consistently on fall runways. Between 2008 and 2013, world fur experts more than doubled. So they went from $2 billion to more than $4 billion, um, according to the International Trade Center, which gets its data from the UN and the WTO. Let's have that conversation, the nuanced conversation. How do we get past fur's murder? I think you look at ways that are not just factory-farmed fur and think about alternative sources. Obviously, vintage fur... There's a ton of it out there. Vintage um, just means old fur that's already been made. That and... already exists. If your mom gave you one, if your grandma gave you one. My great aunt's um, closet. I've talked to so many people in New York that have a parent or a grandparent's old fur. And there are tons of furriers still in New York who do a lot of business restyling those, sort of cutting them down and making them into a more modern shape. Some people take issue with vintage fur and say that Wearing fur at all raises the profile mm-hmm. of it sort of as a fashion item. It's not going away. And I think that to say, you know, you shouldn't wear your grandma's old fur, you should throw it away because it's going to make it cool if you wear it. I don't know. So what if we want some fresh fur? Set aside grandma's fur. <laughs> I like um, it fresh and ethically acceptable. Yeah. I mean, there's a variety of ways of thinking about it. There's wild fur, which comes from hunters and trappers. It's a pretty small fraction of the fur market, partially because it's less consistent. It can have scratches. It's smaller. It might look a little bit mangier because it lived a wild life. And for that reason, unlike wild game, it's actually cheaper than farmed fur. But we have such a terrible history of applying pressure to wild populations. Wouldn't that be a terrible idea to to, to go out into the wild instead of We just use saw farms. what happened with the sturgeon when we did that. Yeah, exactly. So we're not talking about hunting endangered species sort of in an unregulated way. Most of the wild fur comes from the U.S. and Canada, where hunting is highly regulated. And actually, in some cases in Canada, there are sort of these huge swaths of wilderness where Hunters are the only guys out there, and they do a lot of reporting on sort of what they find in the wildlife populations and monitoring um, because they have some stake in the health of the ecosystem. That's right. We do actually highly regulate how many fish, for example, can be caught based on, you know, their population numbers. Um, I I hadn't thought of that. 
What if you don't want to kill the animal? Can you just sort of run a lint roller over it or shave it or uh, get fur from animals that died of old age? Okay, so there's wild fur, and then there's what a woman in Massachusetts is calling accidental fur, which does not involve intentionally killing an animal. It involves finding roadkill and using the pelts to make accessories. Does it not have tire prints on it? Some of it might. That's what makes it unique. (laughs) You have to pay extra for that. No, you don't. She makes a lot of small items. She makes a lot of pom-poms that go on hats or mittens. Hmm. In a way, it's hard to argue with that, to say, here's this beautiful animal that unfortunately was killed by a highway. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't use that. Yeah. What I find interesting about this is that there are, like, there's not a one right answer for everything. I mean, the answer to sturgeon was don't hunt it and instead farm it. An answer to fur, if you're looking at it in terms of treatment for animals, is don't farm it, hunt it, well, or run over it. <laughs> what if we just didn't want the animal at all, and then we could hunt it away? Well, there are animals like that, and this, Sabri, you might speak to your concern, is there are invasive species or species that are specifically damaging to certain ecosystems. I spoke to a guy named Michael Massimi who works with wildlife management in southern Louisiana where a giant semi-aquatic rodent <laughs> called I'm a nutria. Liking this already. Which honestly <laughs> sounds like, I figured out what it reminds it sounds like a Soylent competitor. <laughs> it's like a futuristic <laughs> startup that's selling you like a food-based protein slurry. <laughs> and it's called Nutria. And maybe it's made from Nutria. This could be the second part of the scheme. All right, Tim, so let's get back on track. So Jenny introduced us to Michael Massimi of the Barataria Terrebonne National Estuary Program in Louisiana. And we have him on the show today. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, Michael, what is a Nutria? The Nutria looks like a mix between a a beaver and a rat. It's a semi-aquatic rodent. Uh, they get pretty big. A big male can be 20 plus pounds. Jeez. And they don't belong here. They, uh, they were introduced here from their native range in South America back in the 1930s to bolster the fur industry. They were basically brought here as fur bearers. And how'd they end up in the wetlands? Well, initially they were mostly in fur farms and a lot of those farms went out of business. Some of them were just released. Some of them were probably intentionally stocked into wild areas. Long story short, by the 40s and 50s, we had wild nutria all over the the coastal zone. And they they do a lot of damage. As a natural resource manager, I'm not really into culling animals for any good reason, but... uh, you know these these things are kind of like termites on the wetlands. So I've I've come to I've come to an agreement in my mind about it being okay to remove these things. They're they're the marsh ain't big enough for the two of us. What are you doing about the nutria? What what has been tried to like hold them back? Well, for a long time, the fur market kept the nutria in check. So that pelts were valuable enough that there was an incentive for trappers, and then in the 80s, you may recall, there was a, a bit of a backlash against the fur industry. That combined with some other economic forces led to a sharp declines in the price per pelt. So once the price fell out, the trappers had no incentive to go get nutria. They started spending coastal restoration dollars back in the year 2000. Their first idea was to sell nutria meat for human consumption. It's actually pretty good by, all, by most accounts. What does it <laughs> <And> taste like? 
Um, I've had it uh, in a sausage and in a meatball. I have heard complaints that, you know, it tastes like a swamp or it tastes like a marsh, but I think if you prepare it right... <laughs> who's tasted it's a, a swamp it's a fine before? Meat. Yeah, who's tasted a swamp anyway? <laughs> Were there any branding efforts? Yes, there was a branding effort. Marsh hair was one. Oh, that sounds oh, delicious. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and rangudan, which, you know, throw a foreign word in there. Nobody knows oh, what yeah. that is. But, but that's, I think, what it's called in Turkey, where it is considered a delicacy. Okay. Oh. <laughs> and also in, in southeastern Louisiana, we're really sitting on a mountain of natural resources. The, the list of delicious things to harvest from the environment is very long before you get down to you know, the, a mixture between a beaver and a rat. <laughs> okay, so that didn't work. What's the next thing? They decided to just skip the marketing effort and go straight to the trappers and hunters. And so in 2002, they began, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries began the Coastwide Nutria Control Program. And so that program continues today. It's in its uh, 13th year. They pay hunters and trappers $5 per tail. And the reason they use tails um, as the currency for this incentive payment is, well, for one, it's, it's a lot easier to deal in tails than nutria carcasses. But also... Um, Old saying in Louisiana, I'm sure. <laughs> and also, um, if there is a market for the fur or the meat, then the trapper can really get paid three times. You can get your $5 per tail. You can, if, you, if you're a hustler, you can still go, go find um, you know, someone to purchase the fur and someone to purchase the meat. Uh, those markets are, are small and underdeveloped, and I think there's potential there. And so that's where uh, BITNEP, my group, Veritaria Terrebonne National Estuary Program, comes in. We uh, solicit project proposals, and twice now, a group called Righteous Fur has won uh, a grant from us to exclusively use fur from the Coastwide Nutria Control Program, utilize that fur, and make accessories and fur fashions and fur fashion shows and uh, drum up a whole lot of press and... Uh, potentially really increase the interest in, in Nutria fur products. Well, that sort of makes sense because if fur was the started the Nutria problem and then the crash in the fur market created this crisis of Nutria that maybe a fur market could get it back in control? Yeah, that's the idea. Unfortunately, though, the amount of Nutria pelts that are utilized is a tiny fraction of the amount that are actually killed by hunters and trappers under the Coastwide Nutrient Control Program. They're averaging over the, the 13 years of the program, about 350,000 nutria per year Jeez. are removed from the coastal zone. Of that 350,000, do you know how many are used for fur or meat production? It fluctuates between 1 and 5%. Oof, that's so not We much. can do better. Say we did do better. Say there was like a huge rebranding effort. Could you ever like run out of nutria to hunt? I don't think so. Now, the Coastwide Nutria Control Program only attacks nutria on the coast. There's a lot more state of Louisiana with a lot more nutria in it. That's a problem I would love to get to at some point, but I don't really see that happening just from the demand for nutria, meat, and fur. All right. Michael Massimi is the Invasive Species Coordinator at the Barataria Terrebonne National Estuary Program. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much. All right, Tim and Jenny, what have we learned? It looks like where we get luxury goods matters, and uh, this trend goes beyond caviar and fur. Definitely. Supply chains, as unsexy as they are, are part of the conversation about luxury now. And 
that brands are getting used to the idea that they're going to have to talk about where these items come from. And if part of the selling point of a bag is that it's made from exotic crocodile, you probably should, as a brand, be ready to talk about where that crocodile came from. These companies can't really afford to operate under a cloak of mystery anymore because activists will call them out. I think the other thing that we've learned is that there's no way to live ethically or sustainably. Either you're increasing your carbon footprint or you're causing harm to animals. Let's just give up. You know what? Why Why ruin the earth? Just the letters. What? I can hear the letters no, no, no. and the calls. No, why, why, why try to hold off the ruin of the earth for our great-grandkids? Let's just fuck it up right now and just have all the fun. Then it'll be gone and will be gone and... That's it. It's a strong point. I think we're going to get a lot of good reaction to that one. We could wear our Nutria and eat it too. Oh, God, not the eating of it. Jenny Avens is the Lifestyle Reporter at Quartz. Thank you, as always, for coming, Jenny. Thanks for having me. So now for something completely different. At Quartz, we report surprising discoveries. Those are the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. Today's surprising discovery is another uh, luxury animal. This one is what the publication Nautilus calls a gothic chicken. It's the Indonesian Iam Samani chicken breed. Uh, it's entirely black. Its skin is black. Its eyes are black. Its tongue is black. Its internal organs are all black. Wow. It's like a raven. It's like a raven, uh, and they're in high demand. You can buy a pair of the birds for $5,000. Do you eat them, or do you just have them as pets? I think you just have them as pets. I don't know if you've seen other fancy chickens, but there are some very elaborate, fanciful chickens you can own and have as like really attractive pets. The quote here in the Nautilus story is really good. Somebody who plunks down $1,500 for a Williams-Sonoma chicken coop, they want an artisanal chicken breed. They want something special with a story, something beautiful. That's the market we serve. Yeah, well, I want a coat made out of their feathers. <laughs> okay, Just like Jon Snow. We're getting into this uh, luxury goods thing here. And okay, that's all the time we have for today. If you want to give us a tour of your luxury goods factory or learn more about luxury goods or anything else happening in the economy today, check out marketplace.org and qz.com. And while you're at Quartz, sign up for our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start your day. Would love to hear from uh, diamond ring manufacturers. Email us at mpqz at marketplace.org or leave a message for us at 802-430-6779. Tweet at us. Sabri is at SabriTree, and I'm at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. You think I know how to spell my own name. Jake Gorski made our theme song. Thank you to our producer, Claire Tennisketter, and to our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from around the world. See you then.